Well, if you have a Bible, you can open it up to Luke 21, which is where we'll be this morning. Uh, it's actually the last time we're going to be in Luke together for a month. We're going to take a month off because uh, next week we will, well, actually, I'm sorry, uh, in two weeks, we will, we will have Luke next week, all right? In two weeks, we are going to, I'm going to put this thing down because I feel like there's another person up here with me. Um, uh, yeah, so in two weeks, we will take a break from Luke. Pastor David will preach from it next week, and then we're going to have a membership series that we're going to do uh, just for the month of August, talk about membership, what it means, the importance of it, and then we will uh, get back to Luke at the end of August. But we are in Luke 21, starting in verse 29 this morning. We know all about distraction as a society. I would say we are more distracted than we have been at any other point in human history. Uh, technology and the fast pace of our lives has seen to that. I read a statistic from an article in the, uh, the British uh, paper, The Guardian, the other day that said the average person checks their phone every 12 minutes. Think about that, every 12 minutes. And uh, think about this, that they say your IQ drops by 10 points every time you open it up and look at it. So uh, 80 to 90 times a day, we're just opening up our phones and getting dumber, right? That's what's going on. I'm sure that uh, if you're an employee of someone, I'm sure your boss really appreciates that. Uh, but we are so distracted that the most valuable human commodity that we now have is time, right? The dollar has lost value with inflation. Uh, the opposite effect has occurred with time. The more distracted that we have become, the more valuable the seconds and the minutes and the hours are. We only have so much of our time, and we've already established we're giving a lot of it away to our screens, so the time that we have left over just becomes more and more valuable. Now, this is not a sermon about technology, all right? Uh, however, if you would like to really think about whether or not your relationship with technology is God-honoring and God-glorifying, uh, I want to recommend the book, uh, My TechWise Life by Andy Crouch or My TechWise Family by Andy Crouch. You can read either one. One's for a person, one's for a family, but really, really good stuff. Um, certainly has led me to make a couple of changes, but not the point of the message, all right? That was all free. The subject matter in Luke 21 here is, it's bigger than just technology. It's about anything that has the ability to take our attention off of the task at hand, to take our attention off of Jesus. And for us as believers, the task at hand is to faithfully be the workmanship of Christ until the Lord returns. But we have so many temptations that claw at our flesh and try to get us to turn our heads away from our future hope. And Jesus is warning us in this passage not to let it happen. And remember where we're at in Luke, all right? We're wrapping up Jesus' Olivet Discourse this morning. It's a sermon that he is preaching on the side of the Mount of Olives. And we have seen Jesus teach about two events in the same breath throughout Luke 21. On one hand, he is talking about how the temple in Jerusalem are going to be destroyed in 70 AD uh, as God's judgment comes down upon them for the way that they treated the Messiah. But in the same breath, he talks about his return. He talks about his second coming. And the reason that he has done this is to show his followers that that destruction in 70 AD with the temple, that destruction in 70 AD with all of Jerusalem, it's a little preview, it's a little snapshot of the ultimate destruction that's going to come down upon the world on the day when the Lord returns and his justice makes all things right. So let's go to the Lord in prayer right now, and then we'll read from Luke chapter uh, 21. Father God, I pray you give me the strength, Lord, uh, to, uh, to preach your word this morning. I pray that you would give uh, our church body the ears to hear, Lord. We, we have poured ourselves out this week 
Uh, we have given a lot this week for the sake of ministry, for the sake of children knowing Jesus and to reach our community. And so I know that there's many tired uh, eyes and, and minds and bodies in this room. I just pray you give us alertness, Lord, that we would not be distracted over the next few minutes and that your word would be just clear, uh, Lord, and that we can apply it, see real change in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 21, starting in verse 29. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, and at night he went out and lodged in the mount called Olivet, and early in the morning all the people came to him, uh, to the temple, to hear him. In this final portion of Jesus' discourse here, we get a parable and we get the application of the parable. That, that's pretty much it. That's the outline, all right? And we're just going to have one big teaching point uh, as we get to the end. So let's start with the parable. The parable itself is not really difficult to understand, but the words that follow it have caused people to scratch their heads pretty good for uh, the last uh, couple thousands of years. The subject of Jesus' parable is a fig tree. As you can see in verses 29 and 30, the blooming of the leaves of the fig tree was a sign of summer to the people of Israel. The fig tree was not an evergreen tree. It lost its leaves in the winter, and all that was left was a skeleton of the tree. But in the spring, as the weather started to warm up, the fig tree was one of the first trees in Israel to bloom. If you've ever been to Washington, D.C., or you have any love for the city of Washington, D.C., you know, maybe the sports teams and the sites, not the politicians, right? Um, but if you got any love for that city, uh, everybody knows that you go up there for a couple of weeks in April and the cherry blossoms are out. And it's like the, the two most beautiful weeks that you could go to the Smithsonian and walk on the mall and, and see all of that. The sports teams in the city, they even wear uniforms honoring the cherry blossom. The cherry blossom in D.C. is a sign that the weather is getting warmer and the fig tree uh, function in the same way in the nation of Israel. And Jesus is saying that just like you see that fig tree and you know summer's coming, he's saying when you see the signs in the heavens and you see the cosmic order starting to melt down like we did in verses 25 through 28, right? The earth and the sky and the sea are all in an uproar, then you will know that the day of the Lord has come. You will know that the Son of Man is returning. The fig tree tells you it's springtime, the cataclysmic events of cosmic ruin that we see in verses 25 to 28 will be a sign that the time of Jesus' return is upon us. So again, not too hard to understand. Fig leaves equal sign of spring. Created order in total upheaval equals a sign of Christ's return, and Jesus is comparing them. But then we get to verse 32, and things get a little more difficult in terms of interpretation because Jesus says truly I say to you this generation will not pass away until all has taken place so what's up with this is Jesus saying that the generation listening to him that generation of disciples are going to see him return because that didn't happen 
So if we think that's what he is saying alone, if that's all he's saying, then Jesus would be wrong. Well, we know Jesus is never wrong, so we can toss that out, right? So how do we reconcile his words? If verse 32 was verse 25, this would be a lot easier, okay? Because in verses 20 through 24, Jesus is describing what's going to happen in Jerusalem in 70 AD. And if right after that he had said, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place, then we would go, okay, I, I get it, right? Like this generation listening to him, they are going to see God's judgment come down on Jerusalem for the way they treated the Messiah. They're going to see Jerusalem fall. They're going to see the temple be destroyed. Okay, get it. But that's not the way the text reads. He talks about the destruction of Jerusalem in verses 20 through 24, but when he gets to verses 25 through 28, he's talking about his return, the second coming. And then he says that these events will occur before this generation passes away. So what do we do with this? Well, I don't know if you've ever heard anybody say, put a bow on it, right? Sometimes people say that to people and they're like, you know, wrap it up. All right, put a bow on it, right? Um, or people say if they're trying to wrap up, let me put a bow on this by saying, I think Jesus is putting a bow on it here. All throughout this discourse, he has seamlessly gone back and forth from talking about his return to talking about this judgment that's going to come down in Jerusalem about 40 years after his death. Verses 5 through 9, the temple in Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. Verses 10 through 19, this is how things are going to be until Jesus comes back. Verses 20 through 24, Jerusalem is going to be besieged and destroyed. Verses 25 through 28, the Son of Man is coming back. So back and forth, back and forth. Again, all to show us that the judgment coming down on Jerusalem in 70 AD is a preview, a snapshot of what's going to come down on the whole world when the Son of Man returns. And so this whole passage is not about the return of Christ or the destruction of Jerusalem. The whole passage is about both of these things. The whole passage is about Jesus' return and the destruction of Jerusalem. So if that's how we understand the whole passage, that's how we should understand verse 32. It is both and. It is both about the destruction of Jerusalem and it is about the second coming of Christ. In one sense, it's about the generation that Jesus is speaking to. They're going to see Jerusalem fall in their lifetime. Or their children are going to see it. It's less than 40 years away. It's going to happen in that generation. But in another sense, this is about the generation in the future who are going to see the created order give way and the Son of Man on the clouds. The generation that sees those signs will see Christ's full judgment of the world. We've read the whole discourse on two levels, right? About 70 AD and the return. So we should take that, look at verse 32, apply it and say, verse 32 then is to be read on two levels. Yes, this generation of disciples aren't going to pass away before they see Jerusalem destroyed. And when the Son of Man comes in the clouds and the cosmic order melts down, that generation of Christians are going to see the Son of Man return in their generation. And you can trust these words because they're going to outlast the temple and they're going to outlast Jerusalem and they're going to outlast creation itself. Jesus tells us here in verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away but my words will not pass away. So his words are eternal. You can take them to the bank. You can cash them in every single time. Let's keep going. Let's apply the teaching in verses 34 through 36. Thank you for letting me do that. All right. 
That's the teaching portion. That's the explanation portion of Jesus' uh, teaching session on the side of this mountain. He has explained to them everything they need to know about what's going to happen in Jerusalem and about what's going to happen in the world. But what does it mean for their lives, right? Preachers have to apply the text. And Jesus is the greatest preacher ever. So you know he's going, uh, he, he's not going to make the mistake of missing out on the application. So he's applying his teaching here in verses 34 through 36. And what we have is a call for perseverance. You see in verse 34, he says that they should watch themselves. In verse 36, he says they should stay awake. And this is a little hint that Jesus is not coming back right away. There's going to be some time in which his followers are waiting and they have to be on guard. They have to hold on. They have to persevere. There's going to be vices vying to distract us from the task of guarding our hearts and clinging to Jesus. And so in verse 34, he says, don't be fooled into having your heart weighed down by dissipation and drunkenness. The Greek word for dissipation is actually the one that they used for a hangover, like legitimately, all right? It, it was the word that was used to talk about getting a headache because you drink too much wine. Drunkenness, of course, is what happens when you drink too much alcohol and your senses are dulled and your inhibitions are lost. So we've got two sins related to alcohol here. So clearly, if you spend the time waiting for Christ's return, guzzling the old liquid courage, right, getting drunk and being hung over, you're not persevering. You're doing the opposite. You're living a life where you're trying to escape reality instead of living in it and, and holding on to Jesus as you wait for him to come back and as you wait for him to make all things right. That being said, I don't think that Jesus means to just talk about alcohol here. That would be an odd move for him to only talk about alcohol as he talks about uh, the attitude believers should have as we wait on his return. You see him say, lest your hearts be weighed down. Listen, the abuse of alcohol, the addiction of alcohol absolutely can weigh down the heart, but the language is so general, I think Jesus is talking bigger than just alcohol here. What's happening is he's using drunkenness and he's using dissipation as mascots for sins that distract and leave us unprepared for the return of Christ. Paul does the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 5. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, talking about the day of Jesus' return. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Can Paul's words be applied directly to alcohol and drunkenness and dissipation? Of course they can. Of course they can. But it's bigger than that. He's using those as symbols for a lifestyle that recklessly pursues pleasure, even if it means God is not honored. So they're like mascots. And dissipation and drunkenness are great mascots for distracting sin. If somebody's drunk or somebody's hungover, they're not ready for much of anything. They're ready to sleep. They are certainly not alert. They can't drive you to the hospital. They can't fend off an intruder. They've got slurred speech, so they can't talk straight. The only thing they're good for is bed until they sober up. Plus, alcohol has the power to entrap, right? I, I've seen the horrors of alcohol in my own family. On my mother's side... She has lost almost all of her uncles to an early grave because of the addiction of the bottle, because Irish blood and alcohol are not good dancing partners. 
It can ruin a life. It can take everything that's good in a person and suck it out until they're a shell of themselves. And they're willing to sacrifice everything for the next drink, even the people they love, right? Even themselves. So the impact that alcohol has, the way it debilitates and leaves you unready for what may come your way, the way it can ensnare the heart, makes it a great symbol for any pleasurable sin. And so I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. He's calling on his disciples not to get sucked into the way of the world, not to get sucked into living for worldly pleasure, because this world is filled with idols who will do the same thing to your heart as a bottle of vodka. It will weigh it down and it'll take it away from Jesus. It'll distract you and leave you unprepared for his return. It will debilitate you and leave you unable to obey his commands. And the pleasures of this world will fool us into thinking that the here and now is the only thing there is to live for. It's reminiscent of Esau in Genesis 25. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Esau was tired. Esau was worn down. Esau was distracted. He was overcome by the desire of his belly, and he made a silly decision to trade in his birthright for a bowl of of, of Campbell's soup. This is what Satan wants us to do with the sin of this world. He wants us to become so obsessed with the idea of having it that we're willing to give up the most important things for something as meaningless as a bowl of stew. So Satan will come along and convince a man that his lust must be acted upon and that man will trade in his holiness and his integrity for a 2D image on his computer. Is that really any different from Esau? Satan will come to a woman with possessions and convince her she's got to have what her friends have what her neighbors have, so she covets and she trades in her contentment in Christ for a lust after a possession that's going to be in a yard sale in the very near future. The enemy will come to a young person and convince them that expressing themselves through sexuality is the most important thing that could happen in their lives. So they trade in finding identity in Christ for finding identity in some form of sexuality that God has not ordained. Satan came up on Adam and Eve in the garden and hissed at them with lies about God and lies about themselves and he distracted them and they fell and they were separated from God. They went into hiding. They were not prepared to be in his presence and Satan wants to do the same thing in every one of our lives. He wants to separate you from your God. He wants to leave you totally unprepared for his coming. He wants you drowning in infatuation with the cares of this world so that the day of judgment would come down upon you like a trap. It will come down on him too, though. He knows that. But the enemy wants people in the building with him while it burns because he's evil and because he's a murderer. But Jesus has the remedy for us. The remedy to sinful distraction and idolatry is readiness. So that's our one big teaching point for this morning. I don't have three. I've got one, so you can write this down if you're taking notes. Readiness is the key to perseverance. Readiness is the key to perseverance. What does readiness look like? Well, the Lord says, watch yourselves. Literally means to be on guard with vigilance like a soldier in a watchtower. 
When we went to Rehoboth Beach on vacation earlier this year, we found that they have all these watchtowers they built during World War II so the U.S. Army could keep watch. And so there's 11 of these towers down the coast of Delaware and New Jersey, and if you go to the top of one at Cape Henlopen, you can see for 14 miles. When we went on top, there's a picture of, there's Katie, and I was doing the photo cred, and me and Beckett, not much on height, so we weren't too cool in getting next to that fence, you know what I mean? Uh, but the rest of them were. But you can see out for 14 miles, you can see all the way out to the ocean, and the U.S. Army used that because they were trying to be vigilant. They wanted to stay on watch during World War II. It wasn't comfortable up there. It was totally utilitarian. There was nothing pretty up there about these uh, watchtowers. They were made for one purpose, and that was to stand with vigilance. Every abnormality that, that any guard on that watchtower during World War II must have noticed, they, they, they would have said, something's going on. We've got to find out what that is. Because any abnormality could have been an approach from the enemy. And we have to approach our lives the same way. When we're tempted to sin, we feel that temptation come upon us, we should not take that lightly. We should take that as engagement from the enemy. We should take that as an attack from Satan, trying to destroy our spiritual lives, trying to separate us from Jesus. But here's the good news, is that as you are standing watch over your life, you don't do it alone. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Sometimes people say, God won't give you more than you can handle, and they point to this verse. That's not what this verse means. God gives you more than you can handle all the time so that you would then have to turn to him and depend on him. He loves to give us more than we can handle, right? So that we would cling to Jesus. That's what sanctification so often is. What this verse is saying is he won't give you any more temptation than you can handle with his help. That he will provide the way of escape. That we can never sin and then go, the temptation was just too strong. That was the reason I sinned. This verse says we can never use that excuse. Because he is there providing a way of escape if we would only take it. We must turn to Him. We must be vigilant and turn to His Word. We must turn to prayer, which I'll get to in a moment. We must turn to Christian accountability. We must turn to the power of His Spirit. We must stand on guard against sin in our lives and war against it in our hearts so we don't find ourselves distracted by the pleasure of sin and the return of Christ comes upon us like a trap instead of a treasure. Similarly, Jesus says, stay awake at all times. Very similar to the charge to watch yourself. It's a call to vigilance. It's a call to alertness. He's saying don't get caught sleepwalking through this life. Don't get lulled into a trance of spiritual unconsciousness by the temporary pleasures that the world has to offer. So how do we ensure that we are alert? How do we ensure that we are vigilantly standing awake? Well, Jesus gives us the answer in verse 39, doesn't he? You can look there in Luke 21 on my page change there we go uh look look at uh at, at verse 36 not 39 but stay awake at all times praying that you may have the strength to escape stay awake at all times praying that you may have the strength to escape if readiness is the key to persevering listen then prayer is the key to readiness if readiness is the key to perseverance Prayer is the key to readiness. 
Because in prayer, we are coming to God and we're spreading out our hands before Him and we're saying, I can't handle any of this on my own. There's nothing in this life I can face on my own. Any plan that I come up with to deal with my life, be it temptation or some other thing, is not going to cut it. I need your strength. I need your plan. I need to acknowledge you in all my ways because I'm not good enough. Don't you see this modeled for us in the Lord's Prayer? Give us this day our daily bread. What's implied in that is give us this day our daily bread because without it, without your provision, we're going to starve. Forgive us our debts because if you don't forgive us, Lord, we will die in our sin without you. We've also forgiven our debts because if we don't, we'll die in bitterness without you. Lead us not into temptation because we know if it's up to us, we'll find it. Deliver us from the evil one because we know that on our own we would be overcome by him. The discipline of prayer teaches us to lean on the Lord. It teaches us to perform our vigilance and our alertness, not out there in the plains of life on our own like some sort of lone ranger. It teaches us to perform our vigilance and our alertness under his wing. Not to stray out too far and try to deal with life on our own because we know if we do, we'll chase the wind. We'll try to cope without Him. We'll be slept away with the, the pleasure and the cares of this present age. And the day of the Lord will come down on us like a trap. But on the contrary, if we pray, then we'll find strength in Him. Psalm 142 says, With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say you are my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. The Lord wants to be your refuge in prayer. And when he's your refuge in prayer, he becomes your portion in the land of the living. And in him, we find the strength to persevere until he comes back. Francis of Assisi said it this way, spiritual joy arises from purity of the heart and perseverance in prayer. And I love that quote because it brings us full circle, right? People get weighed down by the cares of this world. Their hearts are distracted. They're fooled into thinking there's joy for them in this world and in the things this world has to offer. But in reality, what old Francis was telling us is that joy is found in prayer. The very discipline that Jesus says will also enable us to persevere. So God doesn't just want you to be vigilant and to be ready. And he doesn't just want to give you the strength to persevere. He wants to pour out his joy upon you as you hold on. So you want joy? Pray. You want to be ready for his return? Pray. You want to be alert and vigilant? Pray. If you look at verse 37, it indicates to us that Jesus is heading back to the temple, probably at least for Thursday morning of Holy Week. Verses 37 and 38 end with this wonderful picture of the Messiah taking the temple, holding court in it for a couple of beautiful days. But as we reach the end of this chapter, we're aware that betrayal is coming, trial is coming, the cross is coming. When we get back to the book of Luke in a few weeks, we're getting close to the end. 
and the cross is on the way, might we be getting close to the end of this world as well? Possibly. There's some scriptural things that probably still need to happen before he returns, but we know that with each passing day, this we know for sure, we're one day closer. We're one day closer to him coming back. Are you ready or are you distracted? Are you alert? Are you hungover, spiritually speaking? Does your head hurt today from numbing it with the cares and the pleasure of this world? Let us heed the words of Jesus. Stay awake, to stay alert, and to pray. Because distraction is the pathway to destruction, but readiness is the key to persevering to the end. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the promises of Christ. It would be tough to live in this world not knowing that everything's going to be made right, but we've seen in chapter 21 over the last few weeks that he is definitely going to come and he will definitely make things right, but we want to be ready, Lord. So I pray that as much as we love these promises, they would motivate us, God, to repent of our sin, to confess our sin to you, to drag it out into the light every day so that it may die, that we may be forgiven, and that we might start again living for you with vigilance and perseverance each and every day. Lord, we saw this week through Vacation Bible School that there are just tons of families, God, that, that need your love, that need to know you. There's tons of kids, Lord, that go to school just across the way here that need to know you. But Father, we've got to know you to be able to tell them about you. And so I pray, God, that we would not let the sin and the pleasure of this world get in between us. There's nothing more important than, than, than knowing you through your son, Jesus Christ. And so I, I pray, Father, that um, the cares of this world would not be able to distract us, and that we would stay laser-focused on who you are and what you have commissioned us to do as your people. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.